Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. Thank the Lord for that party that supports the struggle of the plight of the woman. The war on women. You remember that war? The one that was discovered by the co-anchor of the Good Morning America show, that former press secretary and war room strategist for the pro-female Clinton presidency. You know, the one who mentored interns, instructing them on the importance of cigar storage and how to physically invigorate the chief executor of the free world, George Stephanopoulos, remember him? He revealed this world, unveiled that war on women, the Y2K women's suffrage by asking Mitt Romney if the Republicans were going to ban birth control because the GOP is so backwoods that they want to take a pill and ban it. You know, they want women barefoot, pregnant, fixing sandwiches. And Sandra Fluke then stated that she had to basically take out a home equity loan to pay for her birth control because she was hooking up so much at college, which is why we must pass nationalized health care for all. Thanks, Democrats. You stood for women in the face of Arangelo, Julius Caesar, Nebuchadnezzar, Xerxes. And, you know, he was saying he was going to grab them by the hoo-ha. So you stood. Resist. Yes, you Democrats. You got out there. You did it. You put on Grandma Eunice's wool-knitted vagina skull cap. You took to Pennsylvania Avenue after Election Day. You rinked, you cheered for the wrinkled pop singers mining for relevancy as they threatened to bomb the White House because the election didn't turn out the way they wanted. You were ecstatic listening to washed-up Caucasian actresses reading African-American slam poetry at an event hosted by Islamic extremists who called for jihad against our presidency. You know, the one who praised the co-conspirator of the World Trade Center bombings in 1993, who praised Palestine, who lifted up the Muslim Brotherhood, which one of the Democrat National Committee chairman leaders is an active member of. You marched and burned limousines at an event hosted by those who attended a conference just recently. You know, the conference hosted by the most anti-Semitic, anti-feminist Black Panther leader, Louis Farrakhan. So you were definitely for women's rights. And you cheered when this gentleman took to the stage to carry the mantle of the cause of feminism, to declare a proclamation against the ogre of female exploitation and the media exploitation of the constant barrage of coverage of washed-up porn stars and possible relationships that were years before a campaign and years before the left's sudden awakening towards sexual morality. You took to the stage and, and lauded this guy. Thank you. Thank you, New York. The crowd goes all the way up to 86th Street at this point. New York is showing up. I'm Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, and I am your lawyer. And it is great to see so many of my clients out here with so much energy to bring about a movement for justice and equality in this country. Yes, your attorney, the women's lawyer who will stand and represent the rights of women everywhere. Yeah, he resigned earlier this week. Four women accused him of sexual impropriety. The New York Attorney General, 
the office with a history of standing for women's rights. Remember when Elliot Spitzer was taking down nonprofit organizations who were improperly appropriating funds? Yeah, he was banging hookers under the moniker client number nine. Of course, the left rewarded him after he got, you know, his fall from grace, uh, as they do with all their heroes, by getting him a gig with his own show on CNN. But I digress. And you know, you know how I am about accusations. Like with Roy Moore, which we're still waiting to see those rape lawsuits, you know, the ones that Roy Moore can trot in on his stallion in the court and defend himself against, which we still haven't seen. We always want to err on the side of innocent until proven guilty. But this one has a little bit more of what we call evidence, like medical records and such. This guy is a freaking piece of work. Three hours into Ronan Farrell's next Weinstein 2.0 takedown in The New Yorker, he effectively resigns. And he, I mean, it's amazing what kind of response this guy gives. I mean, the New York Attorney General, this douchebag is just a piece of work in his own right. And what he does, it's, you can't even make this stuff up because the Democrat Party wants to sit there on their high horse and pretend that they are the party of the woman. You know, they are the party of, of women's rights. But yet at the same time, this guy is out there choking women and he's out there <laughs> slapping and beating them. And he gives this half-hearted response. In the privacy of intimate relationships, I have engaged in role-playing and other consensual sexual activity. I have not assaulted anyone. I have never engaged in non-consensual sex, which is a line I would not cross. <laughs> and you know what's funny is if you go to his timeline, it's amazing what a difference a day can make. Because this is what he tweeted the day before. This is the year we turn red districts purple and purple districts blue. Today, Eric was honored to join the Ulster County Democratic Committee as we transform what was started as the resistance into the next affirmative movement for justice and equality. Yeah, <laughs> until you got busted slapping and choking women. Yeah. So what did this guy do? Well, this is from The New Yorker. Eric Schneiderman, New York Attorney General, um, he's long been a liberal Democrat champion of women's rights, and recently he has become an outspoken figure in the Me Too movement against sexual harassment. He has used his authority to take legal action against disgraced film mogul Harvey Weinstein and to demand greater compensation for the victims of Weinstein's alleged sexual crimes. Last month, when The Times and this magazine were awarded a joint Pulitzer Prize for sexual crimes um, and coverage of sexual harassment, Schneiderman issued a congratulatory tweet praising, quote, the brave women and men who spoke up about the sexual harassment they had endured at the hands of powerful men. Without these women, he noted, there would not be the critical national reckoning underway. Now Schneiderman is facing a reckoning of his own. <laughs> yeah, I can say that. As his prominence as a voice against sexual misconduct has ridden, risen, so too has his distress for four women with whom he has had romantic relationships or encounters. They accuse Schneiderman of having subjected them to non-consensual physical violence. All have been reluctant to speak out, fearing reprisal. But two women, Michelle Manning Barish and Tanya Silvaritan, have talked to The New Yorker on record because they feel doing so would protect other women. They allege that he repeatedly, hitting them, or repeatedly hit them, often after drinking, frequently in bed, and never with their consent. 
They did not report their allegations to police at the time, both saying that they eventually sought medical attention after being slapped hard across the face and ear. Also choked. Silverton um, says that Schneiderman warned her he could have her followed and her phones tapped. And both say that he threatened to kill them if they broke up with them. <laughs> Amazing. And see, this is the progressive power struggle right here. This is the progressive power move. You know, you are the highest law enforcement officer in the state of, of New York. And this is how you wield your power. This is why we are advocates of small government, because we don't want you to place that much power in the hands of a human being, because absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And just like this douchebag, he used it. A third former romantic partner of Schneiderman's to um, told Manning, Barish, and Silvardin that he also repeatedly subjected her to non-consensual physical violence, but she told him that she was too frightened to come forward. A fourth woman, an attorney who has held prominent positions in the New York legal community, says Schneiderman made an advance toward her. When she rebuffed him, he slapped her across the face with such force that it left a mark that lingered the next day. She recalls screaming in surprise and pain and began to cry as she says she was frightened. She is asked to remain unidentified, but shared a photograph of the injury. Now, Barish was romantically involved with Schneiderman from the summer of 2013 until New Year's Day 2015. Um, the other female that came forward was with him from the summer of 2016 until the fall of 2017. Both are articulate, progressive Democrat feminists in their 40s who live in Manhattan. They work and socialize in different circles, and although they have become aware of each other's stories, they have only few overlapping acquaintances. And to this day, they've never spoken to each other. Over the past year, both watched with admiration as other women spoke out about sexual misconduct. But as Schneiderman used the authority of his office to assume a major role in the Me Too movement, their anger and anguish grew. Schneiderman's activism on behalf of feminist causes has increasingly won him praise from women's groups. On May 1st, the, the New York-based National Institute for Reproductive Health honored him as one of three champions of choice at its annual fundraising luncheon. Accepting the award, Schneiderman said, quote, if a woman cannot control her body, she is not truly equal. Well, if a man cannot control hitting a woman trying to control her body, there's a problem there, Mr. Schneiderman. But back to the story. But as Manning Barris sees it, quote, you cannot be a champion of women when you are hitting them and choking them in bed and saying to them, you are an effing whore, she says. Schneiderman's involvement in the Weinstein investigation, um, she quoted as saying, how can you put a perpetrator in charge of the country's most important sexual assault case? Yeah, no kidding. Silverman describes Schneiderman as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde figure and says that seeing him lauded as a supporter of women has made her feel sick, adding, quote, this is a man that has stalked or staked his entire career, his personal narrative on being a champion for women publicly. But he abuses them privately. He needs to be called out. Now, one night when they were in the bedroom of his Upper West Side apartment, still clothed but getting ready for bed and lightly baiting each other, she recalls he called her a whore and she talked back. They both have been drinking. Her recollection of the conversation was blurry, but what happened next remains vivid. Schneiderman says 
She or Snyder Schneiderman, she says, backed her up to the edge of the bed. All of a sudden, he slapped me open handed and with great force across the face, landing the blow directly onto my ear. It was horrendous. It just came out of nowhere. My ear was ringing. I lost my balance and fell backward onto the bed. I sprang up. But at this point, there was very little room between the bed and him. I got up to try to shove him back or take a swing. And he pushed me back down. He then used his body weight to hold me down, and he began to choke me. The choking was very hard, and it was really bad. I kicked at every fiber. I felt I was being beaten by a man. She finally freed herself, got back on her feet. I was crying and in shock, she said. She was crying. She recalls uh, shouting. Are you crazy, she said. To her astonishment, Schneiderman accused her of scratching him. At one point, she can't remember if it was... This moment or later in the conversation, he told her, you know, hitting an officer of the law is a felony. (laughs) Wow, this guy. It's amazing. And what's even crazier is what he said to the other woman, because she's of Indian descent. You know, she's from India. um, She's also an author of The Big Lie, Motherhood, Feminism and the Reality of the Biological Clock, which explores infertility issues. She's also an actress and a film producer, as well as a supporter of feminist and progressive social causes. She, too, is divorced. In 2016, she attended the Democrat National Convention in Philadelphia, where she met Schneiderman. Um, They first encountered and they started dating after that. Um, They seemed to be a happy couple. They ended up um, living in the apartment together, attending political functions and dinners and what have you. And she says it was a fairy tale that became a nightmare. She um, said that the slap started after they got to know each other. It, it was at first as though he was testing me. Then it got stronger and harder. It wasn't consensual. It wasn't sexual placating. It was abusive, demeaning, and threatening behavior. When Schneiderman was violent, he often made sexual demands. He was obsessed with having a threesome and said it was my job to find a woman, she said. He said that he'd have nothing to look forward to if I didn't, and he would hit me until I agreed. Now, she had no intention of having a threesome. She recalls, sometimes he would like to call, she would tell me to call him master, and he would slap me until I did. And she went on further because she was born um, in India. She had dark skin. She recalls that he started calling me his brown slave and demanding that I repeat that I was his property. Unbelievable. So, yeah. Do you, me too people, feel like you're being played? Do you, you know, like like Flavor Flav says? Why you want to play me like fried ice cream? Yeah, like fried ice cream, Flavor Flav. Yeah, boy. <laughs> you're being played on the left. Now, Fox News is stating Republicans are questioning who knew what and when about the allegations that led to Schneiderman's uh, fall from power. Quote, while there have been rumors about problems with Schneiderman and allegations of substance abuse, the deeply disturbing accounts and physical and mental abuse laid out by his victims were shocking, New York GOP chairman Ed Cox told Fox News. It's always been clear Eric Schneiderman was drunk with political power, but now we know that extended to the dark annals of his personal private life. Cox added, it begs the question of who in the New York Democrat circles knew about this and Did he decline to prosecute Governor Cuomo's corruption for fear of his secrets being revealed? Now, Cuomo strongly suggested that New York's political leaders were in the dark about the attorney's 
uh, general's uh, alleged actions. But, you know, they were in the dark about a lot of things. You know, of course, this guy also received quite a bit of funding from a guy that everybody is familiar with, a guy by the name of George Soros. Yeah, that guy. It's basically, it was from his son, so, you know, we can kind of go down the lineage. It's not a shock. He received 65500 from Robert Soros, 56000 from Jonathan Soros, and 54500 from George Soros. And, you know, it's funny because there was a lot of tweets being brought up on social media about this. And the one that was really amazing was the one from the Full Frontal TV show, a skit that Samantha B did. You know, she used to be on The Daily Show, and then she left and made her TV show Full Frontal. Um, it, it was posted on Twitter, a skit that she did from last year. Didn't age too well. In fact, it might be the worst and most spoiled tweet of all time. Take a listen to this. Welcome back to the show. Today is November 8th, which means Donald Trump was elected president exactly 100 years ago. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's only been a year. Oh my, where'd this come from? <laughs> <laughs> president Bonespur has had more endurance than predicted, especially if you were predicting his endurance by looking at literally any photo of him being physical ever. But there is hope on the horizon. A hero who stood up to democracy's nemesis before. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's... I'm Eric Schneiderman, and I'm the Attorney General of the State of New York, the lawyer for the State of New York and for the people of the State of New York. Happy one-year anniversary. Well, thank you. You must be so happy that Trump won because he's giving you so much material. What a great time to be an attorney. Yeah, it's like a toxic volcano that just keeps belching out bad public policies. But we have a very strong legal resistance. Are you going to lead us out of the darkness? The state attorneys general are going to be the first line of defense because the Constitution kept a lot of power at the state level uh, to hold a potential tyrant in check. We have that power now, and with great power comes great responsibility. Oh, my God. He's... Schneiderman, Schneiderman, does whatever a Schneider can. Only he can save us all. No. Uh, it, it is not going to be one hero. It's not going to be a quick fix for this. But I got colleagues uh, all around the country, a network of progressive attorneys general who are really in the core of the legal resistance. You are fighting the good fight. Many fights. So we had a meeting in January before Trump took office. We had to anticipate what was coming. So you assembled your anti-Trump squad of attorney generals. Uh, attorneys general. Like Carl's Jr. Uh, almost. And Eric's Justice League has challenged Trump over the first travel ban, pesticides, student loans, the second travel ban, smog, methane, Obamacare subsidies, DACA, the third travel ban, trans rights, clean power plan, and birth control access. Whew. We beat him on travel ban one, we beat him on travel ban two, we beat him on environmental regulations, and the transgender military ban, and we will continue to fight. Uh-huh. You are a superhero. No. no. Why don't we see what happens if you go into that telephone booth over there? Um, think I'll probably stay the way I am. Whatever. <clears throat> yeah, Samantha B. I wouldn't get in that telephone booth with that guy. Uh, you might not come out looking so pretty, and you might not come out alive. But anyways, Samantha B. is probably kicking herself right now. Yeah. But you know whose tweets did age well? Mr. Tweet for every occasion, Donald J. Trump, President of the United States. 
I'm telling you, when they say he truly does have a tweet for every occasion, he really does. Check this out. This one's from 2014. Attorney General Schneiderman must take a drug test immediately. Make results public. New York Attorney General cannot be a cokehead. <laughs> then we go back a year earlier. Wiener is gone. Spitzer is gone. Next will be lightweight Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. Is he a crook? Wait and see. Worse than Spitzer or Wiener. <laughs> Amazing. But you know who else was in the dark about things that were going on? Well, apparently, um, everybody in the New York uh, structure of you know politics because this guy, as Attorney General, decided he was going to look the other way about the Clinton Foundation. We just started finding this out just the other day. The New York Post. State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman gave the Clinton Foundation a pass on identifying foreign donors in its charitable filings, making it impossible to know if it got any special favors while Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Scripps News found that the foundation and its subsidiary, the Clinton Health Access Initiative, took in $225 million in government donations between 2010 and 2014. New York's charity law clearly states organizations that received a, con a contribution or grant from a government agency during the reporting period shall include the name of each agency from which contributions were received in the amount of each contribution. But both the foundation and the Clinton um, Health Access Initiative failed to do that in Schneiderman, a member of Clinton's, quote, legal counsel in New York and a fierce critic of Donald Trump, did nothing about it. <laughs> Amazing. Other charities complied, including the George W. Bush Foundation, which reported receiving $5 million from Saudi Arabia and $500,000 from Kuwait. On its website, the Clinton Foundation reveals its foreign donors, but using a broad range, such as $5 million to $10 million without any time frames. The IRS doesn't require such disclosures. In 2009, Clinton's first year at the State Department, the foundation disclosed a lump sum of $122 million in foreign government donations in its New York paperwork, posting the total amount on a form that requires all charities to list each government contribution separately. Clinton spokesperson Josh Schwerin said, This is a ridiculous accusation. The Clinton Foundation goes above and beyond the disclosure requirements by listing every donor on their website and updating the list quarterly. Yeah, that can be debated. I mean, we just found out that they were money laundering money that the F FEC um, is now questioning. Schneiderman's office said the Clinton Foundation's disclosures regarding funding from foreign governments are in compliance with New York law. I can probably promise you that that's a total load of BS. But will the Clintons ever be held accountable? No, because we're going to sit there and complain about, you know, $100,000 donations to, um, you know, uh, Russian oligarchs who gave millions to the Clinton Foundation and actually showed up at the Clinton's house for functions. We're not going to worry about that. For some reason, Democrat privilege extends to the Clintons, and we'll see. Maybe uh, Schneiderman will end up being absolved of beating women and choking them, and maybe he'll get on the Charlie Rose uh, Me Too Tonight with Matt Lauer, um, you know, and uh, who, who else was going to be on there? Matt Lauer, Tom Brokaw, and uh, special guest Bad Things, you know, Sean White's band. So, Stay tuned for that because Democrat privilege goes down as 
basically you can commit any crime you wish. You can kill somebody. You can beat a puppy on TV. As long as you've registered as a Democrat, as long as you've fought the right movements and stepped up for the right marches and resisted, you will be absolved of any guilt and of any wrongdoing. Back in a moment. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. You know, if you know me, the GOP has been on my do not call list for quite some time. But I have to admit, Arangelo Julius Caesar, Nebuchadnezzar, Xerxes, Trump, he's given us some good stuff this week. I can't complain. I mean, he brought home those three hostages from North Korea. You know, the appointment of Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State seems to have worked out. I'm guessing that is because of the talks that he had with Kim Jong-un back around Easter time um, facilitated this. But I still don't trust North Korea's sudden denuclearization because they did have, you know, Kim Jong-un just met with the president of China secretly and a second on the fly uh, meeting. Uh, Something going on there. Go back to uh, last week's podcast and see what we did on China and all of the nationalist, uh, communist things happening in China. Something going on on that end. So I, don't, I wouldn't trust him. I mean, yeah, we got three healthy hostages back. But remember, this is the guy who basically executed his uh, foreign or his uh, defense minister uh, via RPG because he nodded off during one of his uh, speeches. So... <clears throat> I can't say that this guy's turned over a new leaf that quickly. But Trump, you know, he's meeting with him in Singapore on June 12th. Historic. No one has ever even attempted to meet with anyone in North Korea. And you can get there and say, well, you know, that's legitimizing uh, North Korea. And well, you know, at a certain point, we're at a place where something has to be done. You know, I mean, we really got to get to a point where we have to at least see what we can make out of it all. And, you know, by the way, (laughs) Trump also gave us the middle finger to the Iran deal, the de-pantsing of Obama's legacy, which was amazing to watch, (laughs) I have to say. I mean, and what was also truly amazing to watch was the left's reaction to everything this week. I mean, the media brownout, on the hostage release, you know, there, there might have been some reports on it, but they didn't really cover it because, you know, it's happening under uh, Trump's watch. You know, it's that whole thing. Gosh, I really wish um, the World Trade Center attacks happened under Clinton's watch so we can see what a pragmatist, you know, a di- diplomatic uh, president could. I mean, really? You really hoped it happened under Clinton? I, hope, I hoped it didn't happen at all. But that's the way the left is. You know, so the same thing is going on here. They wished it happened under Obama's watch. And, you know, Otto Warmbringer did. And he came back a vegetable who died. These guys come back, you know, fairly healthy. So I don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to chalk that up to it being Trump. But we did get those three guys back, which is great. We also got the middle finger to the Iran deal, which I was hoping for, which truly made my day. And the left is melting down over that. You know, I mean, look at this. Susan Rice 
tweeting out, Trump is the wrecking ball in chief, making America and our allies less safe. Killing the Iran deal is dangerous and dumb. (laughs) Seriously. Gosh, I can't wait till the real stories come out on Susan Rice and unmasking and all of the crazy corrupt things that happened under the Obama administration. Hopefully we can get some justice and we will see what is really dangerous and dumb. Maybe the policies that went on for eight years. But anyways, we also had the outrage of the nomination of the CIA director, Gina Haspel. It's unbelievable. The Democrats are siding with a country that chants death to America. That's why I will never vote for them ever. They're siding with 9-11 co-conspirators. This is the Democrats' midterm policy party platform. Should work out swimmingly for them. They are currently supporting a nation who is burning our flag on TV because the deal that we made was complete BS and we backed out of it while at the same time, the same week, they are supporting a 9-11 terrorist in Gitmo because we're nominating a CIA director who they didn't like. And this is all happening at the same time. I see a blue tidy bowl wave swirling down the drain in the midterms if they keep this crap up. This is as long as the GOP doesn't find a way to stumble on their own schlong in the next few months, which (laughs) could very well happen. But thankfully, Trump backed out of this ridiculous Iran deal. So listen to this from the Free Beacon. The mastermind of the September 11th, 2001 terror attacks asked permission this week from a military judge to share information about CIA Director nominee Gina Haspel with the Senate Intelligence Committee. Al-Qaeda leader Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was captured in 2003 and waterboarded more than 180 times by the CIA. Haspel ran a black site in Thailand where enhanced interrogation methods were employed and opponents are seeking to torpedo her nomination due to her connections to the controversial Bush-era program. The New York Times reported Mohammed asked a judge at Guantanamo Bay, where he's in prison, to share six paragraphs of his testimony about Haspel and the, uh, with the Senate Intelligence Committee. Ms. Haspel is scheduled to appear before the committee for confirmation, and several Democratic senators have called for the Trump administration to declassify more information about her involvement in the program. Mr. Mohammed submitted a request to the judge overseeing the pretrial hearings in the case. Uh, while the, po- the file is not public, um, it does consist of an expedited motion for permission to provide the information about Ms. Haspel. The motion included an attachment titled Additional Facts, Law, and Argument in Support, containing six paragraphs of information from Mr. Muhammad that his client thinks the Intelligence Committee should know. Hmm, I wonder what we should know about that. What we do know is he is the principal architect of the 9-11 attacks, which killed nearly 3,000 people in New York, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. Yeah, let's not forget about that. I mean, it's amazing that the Democrats are siding with the guy who devised the plan. And he didn't even get the full plan. He wanted to do one that attacked the West Coast as well and utilized four times as many aircraft. But Osama bin Laden said, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's dial that down there, Mr. Muhammad. Yeah, don't, let's, let's not get all overzealous with your death to America plan. So that's going on. And the media is obsessed over the fact that we pulled out of the Iran deal. I mean, they're insane over this deal. 
CNN's Amanpour said, I would describe pulling out of this deal as possibly the greatest deliberate act of self-harm and self-sabotage in geostrategic politics in the modern era. Yeah, I think the mullahs have a Bic lighter and a paper flag with some lighter fluid waiting for her. The reason everyone was full-on ready to throw America's national security and Israel's safety under the bus was a combination of a power control away from Israel and Saudi Arabia and also, what is it? Personal economic gain. Yes, always follow the money. Jordan Schachtel, the national security correspondent for Conservative Review, has a good piece on this. The Iran deal was never about stopping Iran from developing nuclear weapons. The notion was merely the echo chamber spin to convince the American people to get behind a truly radical agreement designed by leftist ideologues that served to fundamentally transform the U.S. alliance structure and provide a geopolitical boost to the Iranian regime. If the Iran deal were designed to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons, the mullah's chief uh, adversaries would have joined the Obama administration in supporting the accord. From day one, they perceived the deal as an existential threat to their nations. Just about the entirety of the Middle East, from Saudi Arabia to the UAE to Bahrain to Israel, lobbied against the deal, warning that it would unleash Iran and allow the regime to spread terror, chaos, destruction throughout the world. Many in the upper echelons of the Obama administration refused to recognize the difference between allies and adversaries or between the good guys and the bad guys. Others in the Wilsonian camp believed that giving away massive concessions to the regime would curry the favor necessary for the mullahs to become less hostile to the U.S. But the deal as constructed would never have prevented Iran from getting the bomb. The Iran deal was just one way in which Obama's incompetent lead-from-behind strategy cataclysmically failed to protect American security interest. In backing the deal, some have pointed out that the European allies, particularly France and Germany, are highly supportive of the Iran deal. European powers claim that their investment in the Iran deal is an investment in global security, yet the deal would not have stopped Iran from being able to develop a nuke. Instead, it virtually guaranteed it thanks to the deal's sunset provision. Which is, less, which is set to expire in less than seven years. The Europeans have calculated that the deal, uh, which served for the purpose of rolling back U.S. sanctions and empowering the Iran, uh, Iranian regime to access the international banking system, can provide them with an economic windfall. Paris and Berlin have already agreed to massive, multi-billion dollar business deals with the regime in Tehran. Should the accord collapse... So, too, with these agreements. The deal was designed to serve as a fundamental realignment of American regional interest. The Obama administration's reckless rebalancing efforts sought to, to tip the scales towards Iran, away from our Middle Eastern allies. In the middle of the negotiations over the GCPOA, administration figures made those grandiose promises about reform in Tehran, none of which came true. They said the deal would reform the fundamental nature of the regime. Yet there are no signs of that from Iran. Friday, prayers still end with chance to death to America. The Ayatollah, who still runs the country, calls for the destruction of the United States and Israel. We are told that billions of dollars in cash offloaded to the mullahs would only be used for domestic expenditures. Instead, the Iranian people are struggling with a currency crisis while the Iranian regime has quadrupled aid annually to its chief terrorist proxy, Hezbollah 
Since the deal's passage, Iran has continued to spread its terror campaign far and wide, from Asia to America's doorstep in Latin America. If the deal was truly meant to thwart Tehran's nuclear ambitions, President Trump would not have brought down the hammer Tuesday on Barack Obama's signature foreign policy endeavor. Right. And here's the thing. I've said this before. Syria, you collapse Syria, you take Assad out, you have a power vacuum, you have al-Qaeda, which is al-Nusra, you've got al-Islam, you've got, uh, you know, uh, you've got the Kurds, you've got uh, ISIS, you've got a mess. But if you have a power vacuum that, or you, if you have a, a regime collapse in Iran, you have the green movement, the Persians, who want the democracy that they had in 78. You can have that again. You can have a stabilized Iran. I mean, of course, there will be some sort of infiltration by Islamic extremists because they're there and you have them surrounding. And they were using Iran as a conduit to get to Syria. But there is a movement that can be supported if we supported it. I don't know why we don't. We could have in 2010. Obama blew that off. But maybe now that we have Trump in power, maybe we have an opportunity there. But there are others that had really tried to save this deal, like John Kerry. I don't know if he was going to bring out uh, James Taylor. Maybe he was going to get, uh, uh, you know, who's the other uh, uh, Taylor? Um, you know, uh, what's the guy's name? You got a friend in me. That guy. Yeah, maybe he was going to bring them out there and uh, swoon uh, Trump and Macron and maybe get them to kiss and make up and go on on the deal. But... John Kerry has, eh, he's got some interest in this. That's why he was dashing all over the Logan Act for his own personal gain from Breitbart, which I don't read too often, but Breitbart actually has some good credibility on this one particular deal. A George Soros-financed operation or organization that was previously identified by the White House as central in helping the market or to market the Iran deal was warned by Donald Trump that he will own the consequences of bolting the International Nuclear Accord. Plowshares Fund, with which former Secretary of State John Kerry has been closely associated, sent out the following tweet on Monday warning Trump about consequences if and when he violates the international agreement. The fund, however, did not mention that Iran is already accused of violating the agreement by signing the deal under false pretenses. Yeah, you know what? This is another pen and phone maneuver. We didn't get a treaty as traditional treaties are supposed to be handled. And the Corker deal screwed that all up. You know, they basically Congress said, "Uh, yeah, you guys handle this, Mr. President. And the president just signed this deal with absolutely no treaty power. That's what Congress has been doing. They basically have been trying to do, you know, re-election bids, but giving away their responsibilities, their responsibilities to pass legislation, their responsibilities to be responsible for treaties. They're a bunch of spineless D-bags. But anyways, going back to the article, the, <laughs> during the address last week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu unveiled a cache of secret files he says were obtained from inside a hidden Iranian site and that clearly demonstrate that Tehran maintained the secret nuclear weapons program despite declarations to the contrary. In fact, as soon as uh, we pulled out of the deal, the mullahs were saying, all right, we're going to start ratcheting up our nuclear enrichment in the next coming weeks. So uh, how did that deal stop them from doing that again? Yeah, it didn't. It's BS. Anyways, back to the article. 
On Monday, Iran confirmed reports that Kerry met in New York with the Iranian foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif. He's an interesting character. Go look him up to discuss ways of saving the nuclear Iran deal. John Kerry last June keynote keynoted a plowshares confab in San Francisco where he staunchly defended the Iran deal. At the event, Kerry also implied that then-National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster was best bet at keeping the nuclear agreement alive. And there's a reason. I'll get to that in just a minute. According to the Plowshares Fund description of the event in June 5th of 2017, McMaster's was replaced with former United Nations Ambassador John Bolton, which was good for us. Thank God. I, that's the thing that's really been good. Pompeo getting rid of Rex Tillerson. John Bolton getting rid of H.R. Uh, McMaster's. Even if you might think that they might be rhino-ish, Bush, uh, slight neocon-ish, if you know the backstory behind Rex Tillerson and the backstory behind H.R. McMaster, which we're about to get into with McMaster, you'll see why it was actually a good deal and why all of these new gains are responsible to Pompeo and Bolton. From September 20, 2006 to February 2017, McMaster is listed as a member of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, IISS, where he served as a consulting senior fellow. The IISS describes itself as a world-leading authority on global security, political risk, and military conflict. Breitbart News reported Plowshares is a donor to IISS, with IISS listed as a grantee for Iran issues and Plowshares Fund's budget report for 2016. Plowshares Fund is financed by Soros Open Society Institute. Again, that devil shows up. The involvement of Plowshares in selling the Iran agreement to the public was revealed in an ex extensive New York Times Magazine profile of Obama's former Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes titled The Aspiring Novelist Who Became Obama's Foreign Policy Guru. So basically, we have H.R. McMasters, who was holding the deal together under, um, under the Trump administration. We have John Kerry, who's a part of financially benefiting from the Iran deal through plowshares. Or, yeah, plowshares. It's amazing. We're getting plowed by plowshares, basically. And according to plowshares, it has awarded hundreds of grants whose aggregate value exceeds 60 million. Plowshares in turn funds a who's who of the radical left, including, listen to this, pro-Palestinian J Street, the radical anti-Trump indivisible project, we covered them, the far-left Institute for Policy Studies, which calls for massive slashes in the U.S. defense budget, the International Crisis Group, a small organization that boasts George Soros and his son, Alexander, on its board. The group says its mission is to support the smartest minds and most effective organizations to reduce nuclear stockpiles, prevent nuclear states, although you're supporting one with Iran, you idiots, and increase global security. Besides funding from Open Society Institute, Plowshares is financed by the Buffett Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller's Brothers Fund, and the Rockefeller Foundation. Another Plowshares donor is the Tides Foundation, which is one of the largest funders of the radical left. Tides is funded by George Soros. Here's another interesting thing. John Kerry's uh, daughter, 
is married to an Iranian. Oh, yeah. From the Daily Caller, Secretary of State John Kerry exposed the secret that journalists and academics have been agonizing over the fact that his daughter is married to an Iranian-American who has extensive family ties to Iran. And so that's interesting. (laughs) I mean, so, you know, also let's not forget who the architect of this deal is. Valerie Jarrett. Oh, yeah. Obama's right-hand woman. She's also Iranian. In fact, she is supposedly the one who put this whole thing together, and she has been in the mix with Obama since his early days in politics. I wonder why. Really interesting there. And her father, Vernon Jarrett, wrote an article in a communist newspaper back in the 70s about how Arabs were funding black students and trying to get them into colleges, into academia, and also into politics. Mm, Well, Obama's kind of uh, got some African-American heritage in him, doesn't he? So we got all that going on. And, you know, remember how much Obama hated Benjamin Netanyahu? You remember how he wouldn't mind, you know, putting uh, Iran up against Israel? Um. Remember how he interrupted or tried to intervene and disrupt the election of Benjamin Netanyahu? Seems like he wasn't the only one. Oddly enough, so did Bill Clinton in 1996. In an interview, former U.S. uh, President Bill Clinton admitted that he tried to help then-Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres after being defeated by Benjamin Netanyahu during Israel's elections in 1996, just a year after the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, Clinton stated in an interview on Israel's Channel 10 that it, quote, would be fair to say that he assisted in the process to elect Shimon Perez, adding that, quote, I tried to do it in a way that didn't overtly involve me. (laughs) Clinton explained his motivation was, I tried to be helpful to him because I thought he was more supportive of the peace process. And I tried to do it in a way that was consistent with what I believed to be in Israel's interest without saying anything about the difference in domestic policies. Without anything else, Clinton acknowledged the reality that his efforts had failed. Quote, but, you know, I realized that he was now the leader of the country. And if I wanted to support the peace process, I had to find a way to work with them. I wasn't so much uh, angry as just bemused by the brashness with which he played his hand. But that's who he is. And he did a very good job of it. The Clinton administration was also accused of working to defeat Netanyahu during Israel's 1999 general elections. Amazing. So now the media is trying to say that Israel is the problem and that walking away from the deal is not, you know, America is going to basically destabilize the uh, Middle East and uh, push Iran into being an aggressor and that Israel defending itself is going to be an issue. Um, But that doesn't seem to be the case. Foreign Minister of Bahrain is saying as long as Iran continues the current status quo of its forces and rockets operating in the region, then any country, including Israel, has the right to defend itself by eliminating the source of danger. Huh. Seems to be a different take there. Saudi Arabia has an interesting story. Saudi Arabia will reportedly start developing its own nuclear weapons program if Iran chooses to do so, its foreign minister said. Speaking to CNN... Um, they would build a bomb itself if Iran takes advantage 
of U.S. President Donald Trump's decision to pull out of the landmark um, accord with Iran. Quote, if Iran acquires nuclear capabilities, we will do everything we can to do the same. Saudi Arabia and its Gulf allies basked in what they saw as a political victory over Iran, the rival regional influence after Washington withdrew from the international nuclear accord with Tehran. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Bahrain swiftly backed Donald Trump's decision to reimpose sanctions on Tehran, reflecting their concern about Iran's ballistic missile program. Yeah, it's not like Saudi Arabia hasn't been dealing with missiles flying at them. I mean, geez, they've been dealing with it from Yemen and the Houthis who have been backed by Iran. Hezbollah is in Pakistan and Lebanon and, and, and Syria. Iran is a problem, and we should be pulling out and heavily sanctioning them and supporting the green movement and supporting the Persian uprising and getting to a place of destabilizing Iran and allowing the green movement, the son of the Shah is supporting and allowing that to take hold. Because once that does, we then have another democratic place that will assist us in shaping the Middle East along with Israel. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. You can check out my podcast every week. SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, iHeart. Get the free Roku channel in your Roku streaming store. Subscribe. You can pick any amount. Donate. Help a brother out. Patreon.com. Or you can do $2 a month if you want the exclusives. Patreon.com slash Adrian Slade Show. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>